well, good morning, church. Today is a communion service, so we will be uh, taking part in the breaking of bread, uh, Lord's Supper, communion, later at the end of the service. But one of the things that uh, uh, I want to speak about is behold my servant. Because we're going to be looking at one particular part of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42 and verses 1 to 9. So, the big picture. God sends his servant who will bring justice, compassion, and salvation to Israel and all the nations. I'm going to read and then pray. So Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1 to 9. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and whatever comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Father, we just thank you for today. And Lord, we just pray that you will just open our eyes of our hearts and minds as we look at this passage. And so that we get a greater glimpse of who you are. So, Father, we just pray that you'll teach us this morning. Father, what I say, Lord, I just pray that you will use my words and what is not of you cause people to forget. So, Father, we just thank you for this time and we just pray that you will draw near to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, I'm breaking into this incredible book of Isaiah. Um, it's a bit of a challenge. In fact, 
I don't know about you, but I find the book quite a challenge full stop. It's quite intimidating, 66 books. Just imagine if John was to start preaching verse by verse. It would take him a while. Perhaps that's a suggestion. But what I would like to do is just do a quick overview, because we are breaking into the book, and just explain perhaps some of the structure. Is that on the screen? Okay. So, 66 chapters in the book. It can be divided up in various ways. The way I chose was this one. Chapter 1 to 39 talks about the judgment of God on Israel. Chapters 40 to 66 explains God's plan for deliverance. And within that plan of deliverance, we can break that down further. In chapters 40 to 48, we've got the supremacy of God, the all-knowing, all-powerful God, bringing comfort. And then the middle section, we've got 49 to 53, where God's servant is promised, bringing grace and deliverance. And here we've got three of the four what's called servant songs. And then the final part of the book, chapters 54 to 66, we've got God's future plan outlined for the world, which brings hope. Now, I was interested because what happened, uh, you know, to our Bibles, because up until the 13th century, we did not have chapter headings or verses. And you will tell that I'm a history teacher. Um, The idea of particularly chapters and verses was introduced by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, in the 13th century. And that his approach, his divisions were accepted and found their way into the Wycliffe English Bible and then into the Geneva Bible uh, in the 16th century. And then, because the divisions were accepted and recognised, they actually found their way into our authorised Bible. So we have 66 chapters. And people have looked at Isaiah and said and suggested that it's a miniature Bible in itself. Because we've got the 39 chapters, very similar to the 39 books of the Old Testament, which is all about God's judgment. And then we've got chapters 40 to 66, the 27 chapters that represent the New Testament, which brings the deliverance of God, the supremacy of God, introduces the servant of God, and also shows us the future plan. And so Isaiah has been described as the gospel in the Old Testament. He's been, descri- he's been described as the messianic prophet. And in fact, he's been described as the Paul 
of the Old Testament. So we have a profound book. And before I move on, I just want to say that we're being introduced to the servant. And I just want to say that Israel is a servant, but not the servant. Because from Scripture we can see that God appointed Israel to be his servant. We just have to look at one verse, or two verses, in Isaiah 41 and verse 8 and 9. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Adam, sorry, Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from this furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. So God originally called Israel to be a servant. But Israel had failed its servant task. And throughout the Old Testament, Israel hadn't been faithful or righteous. It didn't show the glory of God. It didn't show and display God's splendor. And in fact, it brought shame and dishonor to God. And At the time Isaiah was writing, things were coming to a head. There was the increased moral and spiritual decline, the political decline, and the military threat of the Assyrians, and eventually the Babylons, was going to increase, and Israel would, would be taken off into captivity. So Israel had failed in her servant task. And if we just just turn very briefly to Isaiah 42, and verses 18 to 20. Israel's failure to hear and see. Hear you deaf and look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind the dedicated one, or blind the servant of the Lord. And so we have God calling Israel to be his servant, and Israel through the history of the Old Testament failing. And if we're honest, Israel is a picture of you and me. But the thing is, God didn't abandon Israel. And in Isaiah 42, we're presented with another servant who would do what Israel could not do. And so we have this great opening verse in chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Um, the NIV doesn't have this word behold, but I think it's important. In the ESV it does, in other versions it does. Behold, observe, view, watch, look at. And it has a deeper meaning than that. 
see or observe someone or something especially remarkable and impressive with real value. And again, God says, behold, which is an imperative. It's an instruction, it's a command. Behold my servant. Look at my servant. And so, this is the big reveal. We've had glimpses throughout the Old Testament and references, shadows of God's servant, his man, to bring salvation. But this is the big reveal. This is the real first time that the servant is introduced. And just a couple of things to notice. The servant is God's servant, whom God upholds to hold, support, affectionately embrace. So we have this tremendous picture of God the Father introducing the servant. We know that this servant was chosen. And again, God says, I delight in him in whom my soul delights. So this servant brings joy to God the Father. And then, at the end of the verse, it says, I have put my spirit upon him. And for me, that is one of those verses in the Old Testament that tells us about the Trinity, because we've got God, the Father, we've got his servant, and we've got the Holy Spirit at work. So God shares his creative, energizing spirit with the servant. His servant is God-inspired, God-directed, and God-empowered. And that theme is taken on by Matthew. And so we've got Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13 to 17. So we are given clear understanding of who this servant is. Matthew 3 and verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptised by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to, and you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptised, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, again that word, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And Matthew goes on in chapter 12 to actually take that passage from Isaiah 42 and apply it directly to Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 12... 
uh, breaking into verse 15, God's chosen servant. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fill what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And then just finally, there's a verse in Matthew 17 at uh, the Transfiguration. And a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the thing is, Matthew's gospel was primarily aimed to demonstrate Jesus' messianic identity. It was to demonstrate his inheritance of the Davidic kingdom over Israel. It was to demonstrate the fulfillment of the promise made to Adam in Genesis 12. And also, it's to demonstrate that this servant, Jesus, the Son of God, was going to be a blessing to the nations. And Matthew's Gospel particularly is an evangelistic tool to persuade Jews to recognise Jesus as a Messiah. But not just the Jews, but also that salvation is available to Gentiles. And so, just to pick that up and begin to have a look at what that means, I've got the discussion questions. As Jesus, we see, as Christians, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of these words in Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Look again at Matthew 3 and Matthew 12. How does, the character, how does Jesus fulfill the character and calling of the servant of God? So in your groups or by yourselves, think. Isaiah 42, the servant of God, being introduced to the, at the first time and how that servant of God is his son, Jesus. But hopefully, we, you begin to see this, and I overheard Sammy saying, incredible. Because this is incredible, that God had the plan of salvation 
And he introduced 700 years before his servant. And we can see how that makes sense and how that, uh, Matthew takes that and applies it to Jesus. And as Christians, we can see this incredible plan of God. But what is the servant's method? Verses 2 to 4. He will not cry out or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and faintly burning wick he will not quench. And he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So, the servant's method is very, very different to the way of the world. And Babylon is a picture, a metaphor for the world. Because we just have to look on our TV screens. All the bluster and belligerence of an election process going, across, uh, going on across the Atlantic. Also, the protests, the calls for justice that you may have seen in the screens. And I'm just amazed, yes, about the belligerence and the aggression that appears with the, with the various protest movements uh, that we've seen on our television screens and seen in the news. But Jesus, God's servant, is very, very different. He will bring forth justice, but he will not shout, cry aloud, lift up his voice, or make it heard in the streets. He's working quietly, but God has empowered him, and those results are guaranteed. And the way he works, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I'm sure some of you have actually been out to the broads, I'm just thinking of Ramworth. You've got Ramworth and you've actually got the bird centre there and you go through the Norfolk Reed beds. And just the other side of that, you've actually got Norfolk Reed that's harvested for thatch. But the thing is about reeds, they are hollow. And they are brittle and they are easily broken. But the servant will not break that bruised reed. And again, that's a metaphor for people who are hurting, for people who are defeated and weak. That smouldering wick, I remember going camping with... uh, old hurricane lights before rechargeable batteries and things like that. And the wick, if it wasn't looked after, would get black and smoke 
and it would actually darken the glass around the lantern and then it would just go out. It would no longer function as that uh, lamp. But the servant knows how to keep the slightest spark of interest in God from being put out. And I was doing some research and over the last couple of years I've been returning back to some of the Puritan writings. And there is a a Puritan writer who who started his ministry in the Elizabethan period. He actually remained within the Anglican Church. He wanted to bring purity to the church and uh, lived through the final part of Elizabeth's reign and then into James I and Charles I. His name was Richard Sibbs. And he wrote a book, 95 pages long, entitled The Bruised Reed. But there's a couple of things that he said. And one quote, the second observation concerning the weak and small beginnings of grace is that Christ will not quench the smoking flax. This is for two main principal reasons. Firstly, because this spark is from heaven. It is his own. It is kindled by his spirit. And secondly, it tends to the glory of his powerful grace in his children that he preserves light in the midst of darkness, a spark in the midst of the swelling waters of corruption. And my favourite quote from Richard Sibbs is, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And so, if you'd like, if you want to get back into some of the Puritan writings, uh, feel free to download that very short book. But it's full of profound truth. Okay. What is the servant's method? I'm just thinking... In verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. And I'd actually put, the, you know, I'd sent the email off to Josh for the presentation and the notes to Ben for putting on Facebook. But this morning I was woken up with a thought that was just going around my head that just gives an insight. Later on in the book of Isaiah about the servant. And it's Isaiah 50 and verse 7, and it just came to mind this morning, and I just couldn't let it go. And so I'll just share that with you. Isaiah 50 and verse 7. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. And we've actually got here uh, Isaiah prophesying, and through Isaiah's prophecy, we've actually got the servant himself speaking. 
and it's showing that he will not grow faint and be discouraged because through Jesus' ministry we can see that he set his face like flint. He was determined to fulfill God's calling. And we can see that amongst all the distractions, even his disciples, Peter in particular, said, you don't want to do that. You can't do that. But he walked through, setting his face as flint and going through all the suffering, the beatings, the rejection, the insults, the curses on our behalf at his death and resurrection. And so that, that verse hit home this morning that he set him, his face as flint. He set his face firm to fulfill God's calling. And then we've actually got a a reaffirmation of the servant's call to ministry later on in verse 6. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for my people a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. And I would suggest that those uh, situations are spiritual rather than physical blindness and captivity. And we can take that and apply that to what Jesus has done is doing and will do, that he will bring out, he will open people's spiritual eyes. He will bring out prisoners from the dungeon caught up in sin and from the the prison who sit in darkness. Jesus will do that as the servant of God. And we can see that in his ministry but we can see that in our lives, in people's lives as well. And then, what is the servant's purpose? To bring justice with compassion. Three times in two or three verses, it talks about God's servant, Jesus, bringing justice. And we have a very human view of justice, which tends to be selfish, one-dimensional, and blind to other issues. In fact, we have a very, very limited human view of justice. And to be honest, when it comes to justice, in human terms, we're bankrupt. And I just wanted to draw your attention to chapter 41 and verses 28 and 29. But when I look, there is no one among these that is, uh, there is no counsellor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion, their works are nothing. Their mental images are empty wind. And that, for me, just sums up man, 
humanity in our predicament, trying to work things out, trying to bring justice uh, to our situation. Now, that calling for justice is not wrong. That, I believe, has been put there by God because we are made in the image of God. And so, bottom line, that desire for justice is good. However, because of the fall and because of sin, we are broken. And that means we cannot fix things by ourselves. And so Jesus, the servant, God's son, came to bring justice with compassion. And I was thinking about that word justice. Justice is getting what we deserve. Justice is equal treatment for everyone. Justice is righteousness, doing what is right and following the law. And this idea of justice and righteousness, they're related. Bringing justice means bringing people into a right relationship with God through Jesus and a right relationship with each other. Right relationships result in righteous lives. And it's only God's servant, Jesus, that can do that. And so we've got this picture, this introduction to the servant. And hopefully we can see that Jesus is the servant. He fulfills all the criteria. God says, Behold my servant who I am uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And Jesus, as the servant, took upon himself the justice we deserve. Because without him, we cannot be in a right relationship with God. So Jesus, as the servant, took upon himself the justice that we deserve. He experienced the justice of God in our place. And on the cross, he took all the sin, shame, all those things that we've said, thought and done that were wrong, that separate us from God. He took them on himself. He experienced the justice of God in our place. And the other thing, he experienced the justice of God that he didn't deserve. He was the servant. And this morning, those three, verse, uh, those three words in verse 1, behold the servant. And that's that idea, behold. See, look, observe at someone who is of remarkable and impressive value. And that is Jesus. 
and we are going to be remembering what he did in a few minutes. But I did want to leave the final thing, a discussion point, prayer point, and in the groups, at one time or another, we have all been bruised reeds or smouldering wicks that the damage that's done, the hurt and those other feelings, that smouldering wick, that spark, spark of his light in our lives. And if you are in that position, you feel that you are a bruised reed or a smouldering wick, it would be good if you just ask people in your group just to pray for you. And there will be an opportunity for you to do that. So, so if you wish, you want to share, feel free. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, 24, it says that we are the Lord's servants as well. And so we have the servant and we are his servants. And so in the couple of minutes that you have, think about some practical ways that you can respond to the servant. If possible, reflect, write down and put that into practice this week. So two things before we go into the communion. Pray for one another. If any of, the, uh, any of you are feeling that bruised and that you feel that you're a smouldering wick, take an opportunity, ask people for prayer and just ask, say, please pray. You don't have to go into details. But just say things are tough. I feel a bit like that bruised reed or uh, that smouldering wick. And pray for one another. And then if you've done that, think of ways we can respond to the Lord today. Behold my servant. Look upon him and see, seek him for what he would have you do. So those two things, pray and think how this can apply to us. Three minutes.
Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time. And Lord, we just pray that you'll take us closer to yourself. And Lord, we just ask now that as we go out into the week, we'll not lose sight of Jesus, your servant. So Father, we just thank you and go with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.